The Common is a literary organization whose mission is to deepen our individual and collective sense of place. Based at Amherst College, their aim is to serve as a vibrant common space for the global exchange of ideas and experiences through three main areas of activity, publishing, public programming, and mentorship and education. They publish works that embody particular times and places, literature and art powerful enough to reach from there to here and feature new and underrepresented voices from around the world. With these goals in mind, the latest issue of The Common includes a portfolio of art and writing from the farmworker community. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to contributors, poets, writers, and editors about their efforts to bring the art and writings of the farmworker community from the fields to the pages of this special portfolio in the latest issue of The Common. Jennifer Acker is founder and editor-in-chief of The Common. She also translated a story titled Jacinta Murrieta by the writer Julio Puente Garcia. Here's our conversation. So, Jennifer, you're the editor of The Common. I wonder if you can tell me about this special portfolio of writing and art from the farmworker community. The Common, since its inception, has focused on a sense of place. We're very interested in how the natural environment, the built environment, culture, language, all of those attributes of place shape us and how they shape our interactions, how they shape our lives, our expectations and experiences. And so what could be more place related than a farm and the people who are working those farms? And so when uh, Emily, our managing editor, who grew up on a dairy farm um, in Western Massachusetts, when she brought this idea of partnering with uh, Miguel Morales to uh, to me, I thought this this is this is perfect for us. I mean, these are stories that need to be heard, and uh, we're the perfect venue to bring them together. It's such a, a an unusual idea, and yet it makes perfect sense. I mean, especially the way that you're explaining it with the mission of the common and all of these other elements. But was there anything that surprised you about this work? As you, as you all were involved in the process of curating these pieces and bringing this together? I think one thing that might surprise people are the diversity of experiences and voices that are in the portfolio. I think when we stop to think about farm work, um, we can't help but realize how difficult it is. And we think of the backbreaking labor and the difficult you know, environmental conditions, the hot sun, the cold weather, the working working in the rain, all of those things. But what the contributors have really brought to the portfolio is showing us the full range of what it means to be a farm worker in terms of closeness to family and the celebration of culture and the work of unionizing or um, or you know banding together with uh, with other workers and the, the intimacy of that work. So I think that um, a lot of the, a lot of the pieces in the portfolio speak to those emotional components, which are which are really beautiful, and of course exist right alongside the the difficulty of the work. The work is so wide ranging, so many voices and so many perspectives and genres also. And you also translated a story called Jacinta Murrieta by Julio Puente Garcia. I was thinking about something that Kate Briggs wrote in her book about translation, the book This Little Art, 
She says that translation is the most selfless art and that we need translations urgently because it's through translation that we reach the literatures written in the languages that we don't or can't read from places where we don't or can't live. And she reminds us that the English-speaking world is not the world. It doesn't stand in for and it's not equal to the world. So translation, I know, is very important to you. Um, I find it increasingly important in our world. I wonder if you can talk about the place of translation in, in this portfolio, not just with your work with the common more generally, but with this particular portfolio and the work that you did with the story by Julio Puente Garcia. Well, I absolutely love Julio's story, and it was such a pleasure to work on it. His writing is so full of of energy and imagination and is rooted in this very specific place of the Central Valley uh, where he grew up and, and spent a lot of time. So he's really, the, the intimacy of his familiarity with the place really comes through. And so it was an absolute pleasure to work with his words and to think about them so carefully and to render them into English because I just knew this story was going to be such a crucial part of the portfolio. It, it, it showcases an entirely different aspect of farm work and of this place in California and of our moment in, in history. And so that we knew that translation was going to be an, an essential aspect of this portfolio, portfolio to some extent because of the people who were going to be sending in stories and we didn't want any languages to be a barrier to publishing those stories. And so we would have been prepared to translate from other languages as well if they had come in. Um, I wouldn't have <laughs> translated it myself, but um, though we would have been prepared to find translators for those stories um, because they are essential, you know, getting in, um, crossing that boundary from one language to another, you're able to access a whole vast imagination that uh, is otherwise shielded from us and that, as you were just saying, is, is the beauty of translation. And so I translated a, a couple of pieces from Spanish in uh, in this portfolio just out of the pure love of the language and admiration for the culture and a love of the work that was being showcased. Um, and it, it really was a rewarding experience. It's really something to go through this portfolio and read the bios of the contributors and see just how many of them who were involved with fieldwork as children or m might still be involved in some way because of their families in fieldwork are poets and essayists and teachers and are doing other things. Um, and I've had occasion to talk to a few of them and ask them about the connection between field work and this other work that they do now. And it's so interesting to think about the ways that the idea of being a field worker is still such a huge part of their identity and, and the way that they uh, think about themselves and what they bring to all of the other work that they do. Ha have you found the same thing from working with so many of them? I have. And, and it's been fascinating to hear their stories from, from their youth, from working with their families. Sometimes 
they were working in the fields as children. Sometimes it was a little older. In some cases, they were more hearing the stories of their grandparents or their parents or tios and tias who were, who were working in the, in the fields. And the way that it is a part of their identity still is quite striking. And I love hearing how they continue to carry those experiences with them, even though, of course, they were not all positive experiences. But the way they have assimilated the complexity of their experiences and brought them um, to these deeply imaginative and um, and creative and beautifully written works um, as an editor has been is such a joy. Jennifer Ecker, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. That was Jennifer Acker, editor-in-chief of The Common. She translated Jacinta Murrieta, a story by Julio Puente Garcia, in the latest issue of The Common. Gabriela Spears Rico, Poetry on Borrowed Time. This is a poem I wrote about my time in my childhood growing up in migrant farm worker camps, during which I experienced beautiful communal living spaces. Um, and also I got used to a very routinized um, day with the, with migrant farm workers who were community members and also my mother being part of that of that community. and um, and also the intimate, communal living experience, um, which doesn't necessarily leave a lot of space for the individual because everything is so communal. It's a very beautiful way to grow up, but also I was aching as a young child um, after I gained literacy, access to learning how to read and write, was aching for a space for myself. And I carved out that space through poetry as I started journaling and writing at about age seven and eight. So that's what this poem is about. I've always written my poems on borrowed paper and borrowed time. In the camps, as a child, journaling by the fire, by whatever light I could find. What do you want for your birthday? My mother asked, knowing she didn't have a dime. Notebooks, ama, paper and a pen. So I could steal the minutes from the clock at the end of the workday to write to her in verses how my day went in a borrowed country with borrowed ink on borrowed paper with borrowed time. Farm worker living is communal, todos en joda. Everybody commits to forging space for everybody to stay alive. Counting the minutes, making the minutes count, moving all the time. We work together, cooked together, ate together, slept together, my siblings' limbs and toasty bodies, always extensions of mine. There is beauty in communal living, yet there wasn't space for me to be with me. As a child, you are expected to contribute. Nobody sits idle here. Yet I would sneak away to compose verses on the comforting shelter of my amas bandana, the deceptive strength of the apple trees my Theos picked clean. The geometric shapes and otherworldly taste of strawberries. The slimy gunk that became jam 
when fruit rotted into caneria at the summer's halt. Writing was the way I made, I made time be mine. My grandfather knew the needs of every crop and every season, but now how, not how to string words together on paper to defend himself when patrones stole his bracero wages. In encomiendas on haciendas, in the fields, the right to read was denied. But there I was, a seven-year-old poet, defying poverty. When my chola friends dared me to steal, I shoplifted a journal with a lock. My mother threatened to burn my hands. I cried and begged. I only wanted to write in a space where nobody could open the pages. Ama, punish me. Take my food, deny me water, make me sleep away from the warmth of our family, but don't burn my hands because then I'll never write again. I was always an untrained tongue, an uninsured grad student, an unrecognized voice. I stole to write. I carved out time with borrowed ink on borrowed paper with borrowed time. I'm still the clandestine poet a working mother who stays up past bedtime. But I don't want to be a thieving wordsmith anymore. As long as my poetry is a community's documentation, an archival and historical declaration, a wholly sanctified act of self-preservation, I no longer want to be the one writing on borrowed paper with borrowed ink. On the margins, illegally inscribing my community's humanity, struggling to be legible, seen, in a borrowed country. That was Gabriela Spears Rico with her poem, Poetry on Borrowed Time. Miguel M. Morales is a contributor to this special portfolio of farmworker writing in the latest issue of The Common. Here's our conversation. So can you tell me about this portfolio that's found in this latest issue of The Common? Where did this idea come from? Uh, you know, I grew up working as a farm worker there in, in uh, Plainview, Texas, in Amarillo, up in the Panhandle area. And writing is always something I could do, but I never really knew my place. And when I kind of made the decision that I wanted, I really wanted to explore writing, I was looking for other people who came from kind of that farm worker experience, and I I just couldn't find anybody. So I thought, and I'd go to conf- writing conferences, and I think, oh, I wish somebody would do a panel or something, and nobody ever did. And then I'm like, okay, I guess it's just. I guess I'll do it. I know a couple of writers who are farm workers, and we'll just see what happens. And so we did that panel in 2019 in, uh, in uh, Portland. And then Emily, who's with The Common, was in the audience. And as soon as it was over, she said, hey, I have this really good idea. This was a really good panel. Maybe we could do just publish some of the pieces in the in the journal. What do you think? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So that was 2019, and then, you know, the pandemic came, and we weren't really sure what was going to happen. <laughs> and then, and then you know, like around 2022, we started talking about it again. And I thought, okay, let's, let's if we're going to do this, then let's put out a call for people. I don't want to just be people that I know. I don't want to just select my friends, but I did invite my friends. Mm-hmm. I, but I wanted a mix of people who maybe had never written anything before or people who are, like, established writers who also – our farm workers, but had never written about farm work before. So I wanted to get a good mix of people. So we, we did a call for submissions and we, I think it was like six months that we left it open. It was a really long time. And uh, we just started working on the, on the putting it together, but it kind of just came from the, me needing to connect with other farm workers about writing and how do we navigate that? 
and I just didn't find what I needed. So I needed to like create that community. And it's such a wide-ranging community, it seems like, and writers writing in all genres. It's really kind of fascinating to me, this kind of connection between folks who were farm workers or, or have family members who are farm workers who become writers, who are telling these stories, and also teaching writing. It's just been fascinating to see that connection what are the the main things that you can recall about your time as a farm worker? And, and maybe even what do you think being a farm worker taught you about being a poet, being a writer? Yeah, I mean, I, I will agree with you that this collection has pulled so many diverse people within the farm worker community that I had never really thought about that before. My experience as farm working has been as I was a child. So that was kind of how to figure out, like, I'm eight years old, but I still have a job. So <laughs> that was kind of weird. But I, the farm work I did was, like, working in uh, the soybean fields and the cornfields. So we, we weren't harvesting fruit or anything like that. So then I meet other people who did farm work, but they were harvesters and they picked apples and, you know, oranges and all that kind of stuff. And then so I started questioning, like, well, what is a farm worker? And then, like, there's people who... They grow the Christmas trees and they shape them. Well, they're farm workers too. And then dairy people work on dairy farms and and, and meat packing plants. I consider them farm workers because we're all there helping to get food to the table. So I I count those as being farm workers. And so I just thought, wow, this is a really diverse group of people, and 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 we're all connected. If you read the issue, there's like a theme that goes all the way through, which is about community and love and family, which everybody can identify which is one of the reasons I hope that people read this who aren't from the farmer community can realize that we're not just people that you see in a field as you drive by, you know, mm-hmm. we have, we have inner lives and complications. I think one of the, one of the things I talk about all, all the time is that farm work is hard and it's difficult and it's, it just drains you of all your energy and it's un- unsustainable for a person to put out that much energy all the time. It's just, it'll, you know, deplete you. But farm work also gives back it teaches you there's gifts from the fields it teaches you patience and it teaches you um, how to deal with solitude and persistence and a, and a work ethic that you will never ever learn otherwise when you're there in the hot summer sun and it's like 114 and your arms are covered and your leg you know you're like covered so you don't get burned by the sun you learn how to deal with heat and with difficult situations and you can't like freak out because then everybody else will start panicking around you that, you know, it's too hot. So you've just got to be persistent and pace yourself. You can't, you know, use all your energy at the beginning of the day. You can't save it till the end of the day because then, you know, you work slow. So it has to be consistent pace. And so that's what you kind of learn when difficult times come along. It's like, okay, I'm not going to freak out. I'll freak out for like a minute. <laughs> like, let me tackle how we're going to do this. And so you, you pull on your farm worker training and say, Okay, the field is this big, and we have this many people to accomplish this task. What, how are we going to? What's our game plan? And uh, and that's just one of the things farmer gives you is a strategic mind and patience and a work ethic and just learning how to balance your energy. And that that feeds directly into poetry and to storytelling as well because you've got to be able to engage an audience not just at the beginning or not just at the end, but throughout. You have to like pace them and bring them with you and make sure they understand. Yeah, so I think it, feed, it it works into storytelling marvelously. Well, that kind of leads me to my next question. I I have 
done some reading about you, and I'm, I'm familiar with the work that you've done. Um, what do you think is the place of the poet in shining a light on marginalized people or shining the light on particular events that occur or situations that afflict specifically marginalized people? This seems like something that is very important to you. I think as farm workers and as just oppressed people, we know how to navigate our lives to get through each day and maybe each couple of days or maybe the next week or the next month. But we have to like learn how to manage our lives in ways that we can just sustain ourselves and protect the people we love and continue that path. But then there's things that happen that can de- derail you or there's a car accident or somebody gets hurt or there's uh, you know just all kinds of things, immigration, all kinds of things can just like, disrupt your day and your life and your year. And so you just have to learn to, you know, I need to be able to deal with that issue and and reassure other people that it's going to be okay, that we'll find a way because that's what we do as Latino people. We just like, okay, we will find a way. We all band together and we're like, we're just going to figure this out. And so I think that's kind of what I, I do with my writing because I just want to, when I write, my first audience is always farm workers and specifically farm worker youth because I just need to like, talk to the person that I was because I know how I felt when I was a kid, but there's other kids out there who feel the same way. They kind of feel trapped. It's like, what do I do? I love my parents, but I hate my parents because we're in this situation that, but they express the anger to the people they love the most because that's the most safest place to, you know, let your anger go. And that's to your family. And so you got to learn how to like, there's going to be times we all flare up, but we do it because we're safe. We, we hold each other safe. So that's what I think is really important about this work. And I think the thing, you know, the, the themes about mar- marginalized people, it's just we have to protect each other, whether you're, you're it's, it's the queer community or the trans community or, or Latinos or undocumented or farm workers. Like it's all just the intersexual community that I belong to. I just always have to think I need to make a connection. I need to bring all these people together so that they know we're all in this struggle and that we all you know, there's no use in, in fighting because there's always somebody other in our family. Like my 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 belief is that no, whatever you don't like, it's going to end up in your family. So you just better <laughs> you just better <laughs> learn to embrace it. You know, yeah. because those are going to be the people that you love. And then the, the 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 animosity that you felt towards this other this other people, they're going to become your grandchildren or your your spouse or your son or your daughter. And then. Like you don't want people talking bad or treating bad, treating them badly. So, don't do it yourself, right? Don't do that. So yeah, so the writing projects I try and take on speak to marginalized people, uh, specifically anthologies, because I don't want it just to be my voice. Here's the thing I'm telling. I want it. I want my voice to be added to a bunch of other voices because diversity in voice always just adds layers to, to things that not not even one person could say. We're all saying it together. And so I, I just am fascinated by all the pieces that are in the in this in this you know portfolio and all the other projects that I've worked on. I'm just blown away by how new and emerging writers, people who've never written before, have some of the most amazing stories to tell. It's it's beautiful. Miguel Morales, thank you so much for talking to me today. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about you know farm work and. And the lives and the love and the respect that I have for farm workers, especially especially farm worker women. The the people, the crew I, I worked with was my sisters and my mom and, and my cousins, and they were all women. And I just like there's no 
one that works harder than farmer for women. And I just, I'll fight you on that. <laughs> you know, it, that's just, I believe that the most though. I, I, this is also like a tribute to farm worker women as well. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. That was Miguel M. Morales, an editor for the portfolio of farm worker writing in the latest issue of The Common. Hi, um, my name is Gabriela Lemons, and I will be reading um, one of my poems in the collection. Uh, it's entitled Flying. Our truck gathers speed as we approach the hills of El Valle. And for a few seconds, I am in flight. We accelerate, embark the horizon's next hill. We brake, drive past Algodon. Pull to the side of the road, terremotos on perfectly spaced rows. I follow. My father plucks a bowl, exposes white fibers in my palm. Where clothes comes from, he says, fertile. It's my father's land. The second poem I'm sharing with you today is called Retoño. Um, Retoño is a poem of duality. I was born and raised uh, a stone's throws away from the Rio Grande River in um, in South Texas. And to me, um, I use the word, the, 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 the phrase here, el otro lado. There's a duality when it comes to this phrase. It signifies both life and death. Um, in other words, uh, life as in the um, people coming illegally to the United States and crossing the Rio Grande River and as in a new life. Uh, el otro lado means the other side north of Mexico. But in the poem, it also means el otro lado as in death, um, the arrival of death. Retoño. Sugarcane fields whisper to those who reach el otro lado. Descansa aquí amongst víboras y machetes. Descansa aquí abajo de luna conjurada. Dawn. The harvest begins. Sanctuaries ablaze. But a body can only hold so much water. Fuego cannot be extinguished by fear or flight. Fears north winds unfurled. Dios mío. Plumaje rodea, ceniza retosa. They are difficult to distinguish from afar. A whisper resumes. Descansa aquí, amongst víboras y machetes. Descansa aquí. You have reached el otro lado. That was Gabriela Ibarra Lemons. She read her poems, Flying and Retoño. Nora Rodriguez Camagna grew up in the California migrant labor camps, Texas, and Mexico, and graduated from the University of California, Berkeley. Her essay, Boysenberry Girls, appears in the portfolio of art and writings from the farm worker community in the latest issue of The Common. Here's our conversation. So your essay takes place in 1978 in Central Valley, California. Your words evoke that time of, like, tiger beat cover idols and, (laughs) you know, coveting polo shirts and Connie clogs and, like, these very specific fashion items. There was another threesome, I'll tell you this, 
of sisters in Laredo, Texas, around 1978, wanting those same things. That's me and my sisters. Oh, <laughs> so wow. It was so <laughs> funny. completely resonant. So I love that these specific details from your life, they're so specific, but then they're so resonant. 1978 was a, a time of wanting and peer pressure and figuring out our identity for somebody, somebody who's a 12-year-old girl. And then that wanting becomes part of the motivation for you and your sisters to join your mother in the fields. I want to hear from you about this, about this motivation, that particular crop, that particular year, and working with picking the boys and berries. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You know, in the essay, I address the fact that we became Americanized fairly quickly, you know, once we stopped going back and forth to Mexico. And, you know, yeah, you know, middle school kids, I have three sons, you know, and I, and I, and I actually teach, I'm teaching at a middle school right now. And middle school kids, you know, reaching that age, you just want to fit in with everyone. You know, you're, you want to, you know, you just really notice what everyone else is wearing, how they're acting, and you want to um, fit in with them, be part of it, be part of the fabric of the school, of your community. And, um, I think that's why, yeah, we wanted, we wanted, you know, all of those things so much. And, but, you know, our parents, yeah, the, you know, they had moved up to the middle class, but they still didn't have a lot of spending money. And, you know, there was this tension then because we thought, uh, you know, I guess we thought maybe they weren't prioritizing their money, right? <laughs> we thought, you know, are they, are they just saying they can't afford it or are they just uh, don't want us to have these things because they think they're frivolous? And I think, you know, I think that at some point, our mom got, you know, and your parents also sometimes they'd be, or at least my parents didn't want to admit that maybe they couldn't afford the things that we wanted yeah. because then maybe they thought they were letting us down. Yeah. So I think that, I think that comes into play too. And, you know, I do remember when my mom decided, okay, you want those things, you know, you can come work in the fields then. And, you know, as I was been thinking about this essay and us being, you know, these, I guess, teen, I guess for teenage preteen girls, it never occurred occurred to us to say no. Like when she decided we were going to go to the fields, we were going. You know, there there was no choice. We never would have defied <laughs> um, our parents. So it's it's pretty funny. But yeah, you know, and then you know the motivation was there. To, we really wanted you know those clothes. We wanted to be like everyone else, or we thought everyone else was like that. You know, there's probably a few people who could afford those things. But you know, that's sort of what you gravitate towards sometimes. You know, you see, you know, yeah. the people who wear the certain you know, the the more stylish stuff at the time, you know, because I'm sure everyone wasn't wearing all of that stuff, but yeah. <laughs> maybe we thought so, you know what I mean? But I do know what you mean, I, but I remember that. I remember the Famillari shoes, you know, and the brand name blue jeans, you know, everybody wanted to wear Sergio Valenti, you oh, know, so and we all funny. pronounced it that way too. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's so true. I remember the Chemin de Furs and the Dittos. I don't know. And then, you know, when we did get them, we just felt so cool. I don't know. We felt <laughs> so it gives you something. It gives you some kind of oomph. So, um, you know, we we did appreciate when we did get to wear them because, you know, it, it's uh. not like we when we could wear them, we decided, oh, we don't need them. No, we we liked it. You know, we liked going oh, around. In but them. I love the comment. Was it from your mother who said th the polo shirts were not particularly flattering to, you know, to the female form? <laughs> so. Right. Why do you want to wear those? Yeah. Camisetas de hombre. Camisetas de hombre. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Um, you know, when I was 
talking um, with Julian and Miguel and Emily at the comment about, you know, just all of our lives. And, you know, I think that comment brings back up about the tube tops, like that our parents let us <laughs> wear them. And, you know, my mom, um, you know, growing up, you know, she ended up having six kids, couldn't drive, very patriarchal society. So she was, you know, in her place. But she was this woman who was full of life. And the only way she could exert some power was through her beauty. So early on, my mom really like, uh, while other people's parents were telling them you can't wear makeup, our mom was telling us to put on makeup. Wow. Wow. Um, and I think because she thought, you know, the only she I think she felt that the only power she had in her relationship was her beauty. And I think she thought that's maybe that's all we were going to be able to have. I see. That's so interesting to me. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yes. But she was, we learn a lot about your parents in this essay and the sacrifices that they were able to make to become American citizens, to give up so much, and to make a lovely home, lovely homes, plural. I mean, it was like uh, your dad had such a clear plan, perhaps, to make sure that he was able to have a little bit of, of progress in that way from working in the fields to working in the cannery and et cetera. And then the, the idea that he was never idle is another thing that stays with me after reading your essay. Your parents were never idle. I mean, even in uh, doing something really fun, like having a carne asada in the backyard, was work yeah. for them. <laughs> but there's that <laughs> section in the essay where you describe all of the things that your father does around the house when he gets home from work. It's like the work never ended for him or for your mom, for that matter. Mm -hmm. So your parents really stand out in this piece as two people that were so exemplary. They were such role models in that way and the fact that they were just never, never idle. And certainly, you know, like like maybe most parents, they didn't want you spending your money on anything frivolous. They portioned out the money to you when you went to the mall. You got 50 bucks, but not 250 <laughs> yeah. bucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were rich. We were rich. And your grandmother, I love what you write about your grandmother. She was a storyteller. And you write about how she was, you say something like, she was happiness and love. She was also a field worker, but she spent quality time with you and your family. And you write that she is the one who kept Mexico alive for you. And it, the quote is something like, that she helped keep you connected to your parents while there was this generational gap where you were straddling two countries and two cultures, which we come to find your parents ended up having to do as well. But there was there was a period of time there where your grandmother was sort of the bridge. I found that so interesting also. Can you talk about that? Yeah, my grandma Arsenia, yeah, she was a wonderful uh Incredible person. Actually, in, in the novel that I, I've been working on and I just finished, she she features in it uh, a lot. My grandmother was a big, big part of our lives. And, you know, this essay to me um, is a love letter to my parents and to my grandmother, uh, you know, thinking about everything they did for us. Yeah, my parents, my parents to this day still are not idle. They are, my dad at some point was and working at the cannery and the fields on the same day. I mean, he just, he was so driven to provide a life for us. If he couldn't provide the life in Mexico, which he wanted to originally, he wanted to provide a life really of, I, and I, I think I use the word dignity in there. Yes. And that's really what I think about my dad and my parents. They wanted us to grow up with a sense of dignity that we could become 
more uh, through hard work and through family. And uh, I think that I think I'm hoping that comes out in the essay. My grandmother, yeah, she, all the stories she would tell us in our backyard. I think at some point, you know, teenagers, you when your parents tell you things, you don't want to believe them or maybe your parents tell you so many things to do that you don't want to sometimes listen to all their advice. But when you, with grandparents, I think it's different. And so my grandmother, you know, she could, it, it wasn't over, but it was through her storytelling that she, I think she saw that we were pulling away from our parents and the rest of our family, you know, that our Spanish was um, fading and that our connection to Mexico was too, I think she just thought it was so important for us to remember the lives, um, these, you know, beautiful lives my parents had at some point in Mexico before the economy, the vessel collapsed, I think, in 76. And um, the the I think there was a local um, electric company where my grandfather had managed it. It closed down. They diverted this. You know, all these economic things happened at the same time in their part of Mexico. They just couldn't stay there anymore. And um, and they just needed a, my parents. Some, some of my family stayed longer. Oh. Uh, in Mexico, still trying to make it work. But my mom actually is the one who really pushed my dad to stay here because she thought women um, had more opportunity in the United States. Well, and speaking of that, I know you went on to go to college. You were the first in your family, right, to graduate from yes. college? That must have meant so much to your parents and to your your family and, and to you. I, I won't say more about the essay. I want everybody to read this issue of The Common. It's a, it's a gorgeous, poignant, powerful story that I want everybody to seek out and read. But just for right now, can you tell me what you learned in those years of being a a field worker that connects you to being a writer, working as a teacher of writing even? Mm -hmm. So you can interpret that question any way you choose, but what did you learn from that life that now connects you to this life of being a writer and a teacher of writing. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, as a writer, you think a lot about setting. You know, the, where where you set people and how they react to that setting. And I feel like because we, you know, we did grow up in the migrant camps, and I do was aware that my parents and my family were going off into the fields while we were in the schools. But when we did move to in elementary school, we moved to um, you know uh, that one one of our um, the first house my dad bought for five thousand dollars, if you can believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in our little farm town back then. And then, you know, going just now becoming more Americanized, being in the schools, uh, we began to lose some, we were, we, we became in a very Americanized setting to go back to the fields. So we were certain kind of p- people or kids, I guess you could say, but going back to the fields, now we have a whole different setting where it's hot and it's so hard and you can't control your own time. You know, you can't decide when you're going to have lunch. You have to wait for that break, it really makes you look into yourself and say, wow, I I can do this, but it doesn't feel good mm-hmm. to not be able to control when I can do something or, or technically at one pace to work and how little amount of money you're getting from the work that, you know, you are putting in. And then to be around the other, the other workers there, you know, in particular, that moment when La Migra comes, and to see these kids who were just like us, I mean, like middle school kids that I see, but all, all for a piece of paper, they're now running in fear, like, you know, uh, fugitives, which they shouldn't have had to do. Yeah. And, it, you know, as, as a young kid, seeing that and witnessing it, I think it gives you this um, belief as you get older. And I guess 
to me as a writer to really appreciate that I don't live in fear and that I can try anything. And when I write, I can create the worlds I want to write and they'll be my worlds. And, you know, it's, it's up to me to write them. No one else can control that part of my life. And I, and so I do think that's what we got out of uh, working in the fields, understanding the power we have to live without fear and to control our own uh, lives. And when I do, I do teach at a lot of uh, predominantly Latino students, uh, school districts, and, you know, I love doing it because the kids don't see a lot of Latina writers coming in to teach and, and have similar stories. And it does give them this freedom when I share that, I, you know, my parents were migrant field workers and I worked in the fields. It makes them feel like, wow, OK, you know, then my dad's a janitor. They uh, they're still on a fat, you know, they work at a cannery in Sacramento. It, they just feel like this connection more like someone who understands them and they, they don't feel I remember at some point I felt a little bit growing up a little bit like ashamed I didn't want people to know that you know maybe my dad wasn't uh, owned a business or you know was a lawyer or a doctor you know you get through those moments yeah. uh, in life and I, I think if I would have had people in the schools who had come from a similar background with me I, I, I would have been I, I feel bad that at some point I did feel like oh I don't want to say what my parents do <laughs> you know yeah. but you know you're young and you want to be like everyone else, I guess. <laughs> yeah, of course. What do your parents think about your writing life? Oh, you know, it's interesting. They they don't n- know a lot about it. And since this is, you know, I, I can't wait. I'm going to translate this to Spanish for them, wow. Boys and Berry Girls, because I want them to read it. You know, my parents, they weren't big readers. So sometimes they think, okay, what is she doing? <laughs> so to, to be very honest, I think they were, you know, my one of my sisters owns a pension um, and profit sharing company she's owned for a while. My parents are very like, concrete, you know, like they think concrete work that makes you money. (laughs) So I think they have a hard time understanding. They've always known that about me. I was really the only one in my family who loved to read and they had a hard time understanding. And to be honest with you, I had a hard time when I went away to college. They didn't understand. To them, being successful successful meant, you know, working two or three jobs, work, work, work. They didn't understand that in the United States, you know, your path to success, they do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a big path. Not, not everyone has different paths, but it is a college education. So, you know, initially they weren't happy that I was going and partly because they knew I was going to be living in a dorm with boys. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, they were hesitant, you know, but then as they, you know, they took me to the orientation and different things, they began to understand that it was important. And I would tell them, I want to, I mean, to me, it wasn't about making money with a job. To me, it was about, I wanted to learn about the world. And I think, you know, I think, I think now that they know me more and they see what I've been doing, um, they, they do, they now, now they get it so many years (laughs) later. (laughs) Well, I love this idea that you, that you can learn about the world when you go to school, but I feel like these students that you, that you teach now, these students that you work with now, that part of their learning about the world is to be able to read an essay like Boysenberry Girls. And that's learning about the world, too. Yeah, I think so, too. Thank you. Nora Rodriguez Camagna is the author of the essay Boysenberry Girls, found in the latest issue of The Common. Hi, this is Jose Antonio Rodriguez. Uh, my poem is called Immense, and it's inspired by um, my relationship to my father, who was a farm worker. Um, he had his own very, uh, I guess it's called subsistence farming in in Mexico. And then when we came over, he just, he worked for for corporate farms. And I had a little bit of experience with migrant working uh, as migrant worker as when I was a very young child, um, mostly witnessing my 
my parents and my older siblings work. And anyway, here's the poem. The wish is always that we'd walk in, give each other bear hugs, tight and unencumbered, nothing of my body shameful, that he'd cradle my face in his palms and smile wide in awe of who I've become, that I'd go to him twice a year to help me unknot something of my heart when it broke. But my father never could be that, his Spanish and my English, his love of tractors, my love of books, his big family, my non-existent one. Though, when I can't help it, I must accept that the divide was much larger, immense, if all we could ever speak were cars and weather. I buried him years ago in a grave I've yet to visit, though in my dreams I walk to it, in silence, undress, curl in the grass, the headstone my pillow, and ask him how to extinguish this wish that won't die. That was José Antonio Rodríguez reading his poem, Immense. You can find more information about The Common and those contributors featured in this special episode of Book Public by going to our website at bookpublic.tpr.org. Don't miss the chance to enjoy the art of Narciso Martinez, his USA portraits, at our website and also at the website for The Common at thecommononline.org. A very special thanks to the awesome and wonderful Amelia Pazanza for so much help with this special episode. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>